0: Hello, listener, Gould here. This is just your friendly reminder to check this week's show notes for spoiler and content warnings. Enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where each week we discuss and review a film based on a link to the previous movie. I'm Madeleine Gould and I'm joined by my co-host, co-host, co-host Ed Howells. Hello, Hi, co-host, Ed.
1: how are you doing? <laughs> I've
0: had two years classical training, Ed. Um... Ed, how are you doing? What have you been watching this week?
1: Um... Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. As you know, I've uh, been away this week, so I've not got to the cinema or anything like that. But I did manage to make use of uh, my remaining days of the uh, MGM movies free trial that we used last week. Uh, yeah. So I watched two movies, both of which I enjoyed thoroughly. and very different movies. Um, I watched Fruitvale Station, which uh, is Ryan Coogler's first film. I don't know if you've seen it. No, um, I haven't seen it. It's terrific. Michael B. Jordan, based on a, a true story of a young black man, 22 years old I think he was, who was uh, shot and killed by the Transport Police, the Rapid Transport Police in Oakland, California. Shit. Um, okay. And yeah, it, it's quite an extraordinary piece of filmmaking. It, it's it's a tough watch in a lot of ways, but there's so much of it up until the incident. So it, it covers the final 24 hours of the man's life, essentially, which happens to be New Year's Eve. And the majority of it, up until the last 20 minutes, there is so much sort of lightness and joy mixed in with oh shit, life is tough. Like he's, he's not generally having a good time in life except for where there is joy mm. um and then the last 20 minutes is so rough to watch yeah i i, I thoroughly thoroughly recommend it it's mm. yeah really quite brilliant um and the other film i watched uh was the ryan gosling indie comedy drama um sort of quirky indie thing from like 2006 uh lars and the real girl
0: <laughs> which, yeah I know, I, I, i've seen that. it yeah
1: yay <laughs> did
0: what did you think of it? <laughs> I really,
1: really liked it. It's so charming. It's so charming. And, and yeah, uplifting without being manipulative. It's it's about a really troublesome guy, really, yeah. um, who you just feel for. And everybody in the town feels for as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like the whole community kind of come together to support him. But in not in the way that you would imagine.
1: It's weird because like, he should be a difficult protagonist to like. But something about Ryan Gosling just just makes Mm. you go yeah i love you
0: like i think he's great i really enjoy watching Mm. him and you know i'd like to see him do some more kind of weirdo roles rather than the silent silent suave yeah so
1: i was because i was was gonna say he's done plenty of weird movies Mm. um i don't know if you've seen only god forgives
0: oh yeah yeah only god forgives i was really pumped and then went to see it at the cinema and i was like this is shit (laughs) (laughs) this is a bad movie it's actively a bad movie <laughs> um, <laughs> I think
1: it's I think one of those films um if it's your kind of cup of tea you really get into it and really go with mm-hmm. it uh, a bit like some of David Lynch's stuff like if you've mm. seen inland Empire I've I really actually got
0: your I've got your DVD of inland Empire right? have you
1: did you ever watch it yeah. uh,
0: no I haven't watched it yet <laughs> you lent it to me after we went to see blue velvet at the cinema oh God yeah and, um I haven't watched it yet, not because I don't want to, but just mm. like I'd need to be in the right frame of mind for it.
1: Yes. No, it's um again, it's it's one of those films that feels like work when you go into it. You know, it's like, OK, I'm going to have to really although actually it's sort of better the less work you do while you're watching it. Probably because mm. it's so sort of weird and dreamlike that the more mm. you try to understand it, the more frustrated you're going to get. So the best thing to do with it actually is to just sit there and look at it and let it sort of happen mm. in front of you
0: I d- I'm not sure that da- any of David Lynch's films are easy to watch
1: no it's not really the point
0: <laughs> not no that's not the point point. and I have never made it all the way through to the end of Mulholland Drive not because I don't like it mm-hmm. but because it takes so much effort to watch I think I need to watch a David Lynch film in the cinema <laughs> sure because yeah. I think I need that kind of dedicated, energetic watching setup. You can't just slump on the sofa and watch. Yeah. Um,
1: if I remember rightly, when we went to see Blue Velvet, it was at the Prince Charles, wasn't it? And it was um, a double bill. It was a double bill with Mulholland Drive, I think. And we came out of Blue Velvet, and you were just like, uh, "I think I've had enough.
0: I think I've had <laughs> enough. I need to go for a pint. I yeah. can't. I, I think... can't do another."
1: <laughs> didn't, didn't we go to that nice uh, that nice tie around the back of the Coliseum?
0: We that nice tie around the back of the Coliseum yeah it was lovely um but yeah and I I just couldn't cope with a David Lynch double bill it it takes too much out of you and it would feel like disrespecting Blue Velvet, which I had seen for the first time when we went to see it. I, like I needed to digest it properly <laughs> and like really properly think about it. And that is like the imagery in it. I didn't want to like sully it with a different movie, you know. So it's it, yeah. I I am mad keen for Inland Empire, and I will give you your DVD back at some point.
1: What about you? What have you been watching?
0: My movie watching is largely dictated mm-hmm. by the films we're going to cover, and then um, also what we're covering on the course I'm doing at the Broadway. So um, this. This week we're going to talk about gene tierney so okay. i've watched laura which is fantastic and some of a film called okay. heaven can wait which is not fantastic <laughs> <laughs> although um, i gather at the time i think it was received as fantastic yeah. but it's very uh, it's not my cup of tea
1: what uh, what's it about what what is it
0: it's about an old rich guy who dies gets rejected from heaven and comes down to the waiting room of hell and has to justify why he should be allowed to go to hell. Oh, right. And then you see his life story and he's like this really spoil, obnoxious piece of shit guy mm. who then kind of falls in love with Jean Tierney's character. Um, he kind of steals her away from his cousin, Albert. They get married, have a life. And then at the end of the film, the devil tells him to go and try heaven again because he probably should be able to get into heaven it well it doesn't it didn't hold my interest mm. particularly but laura was great i really enjoyed it laura was a proper kind of who and why done it okay there's some really good twists and turns and it's so gene tierney plays laura and then um her fiance is played by vincent price
1: nice
0: <laughs> but like young trying to be a normal person vincent price <laughs> <That's> <laughs> That's
1: one of my favourite modes of Vincent Price. It's, uh, it's
0: amazing, yeah. and he, it's all like there's nothing sinister about me. He's really wonderful. <laughs> He's so great. And um, the actress whose name I can't remember, but she plays Mrs Danvers in the in Hitchcock's Rebecca, quite iconically, and she's in it. And just because of that performance in um, Rebecca, I'm just like, well, you're up to no good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's funny, some actors do carry that baggage, don't they? There are some actors who you just instantly don't yeah. trust purely because oh. of who and what they've played before.
0: Ted Levine, who pops up in loads of stuff and I'm just like, you're evil. He, he's Buffalo Bill in Silence of the ah. He pops up as a character in Shutter Island and um, as soon as he pops up, I'm just like, mm, you're a wrong don't yep. trust you. <laughs> So yeah, I've not I've not watched a right lot. Um, I have been mostly doing a lot of research for the film we're going to cover today because there's so much stuff. I suppose we should come onto it really, shouldn't I was going we? To say, so, yeah, what,
1: what are we covering and why?
0: We are covering this week. Tim Burton's 1988 Beetlejuice. And the reason we're covering it as a hop-on from Thelma and Louise is Gina Davis. It was my choice. Yeah, I was really surprised that you hadn't seen it. Yeah,
1: I know. Not because it's a film that everybody must see, but because (laughs) it's a film that I thought would appeal to you so strongly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I mean... In Tim Burton's films in the kind of 80s and 90s, there's some of my favourite films in there. We'll probably talk about Tim Burton a little bit later on, but I have opinions. But first things first, Ed, are you ready to do your timed plot synopsis? Well, we'll find out. I haven't written it down, so it's just going to be
1: from my brain.
0: Well, Beetlejuice is 92 minutes long. You, on the clock, have got 92 seconds. 92 seconds. Three, two, one, go.
1: Okay. so recently deceased married couple, the Maitlands, uh, attempt to rid their house uh, of the... Unwelcome inhabitants, the Dietzes. It's a sort of reverse haunting. Um, they fail to do so, and then, against the advice of their ca- uh, case worker Juno, they enlist the aid of Michael Keaton's Beetlejuice, who is a bioexorcist. Um, he shows up and causes all sorts of havoc and mayhem until he gets eaten by a sandworm, <laughs> and that's basically the plot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, that was so fast. That was 41 seconds, Ed. Booyah! Was there anything I really missed? <laughs> Certainly nothing that's not going to get covered. Exactly. Um, let's do some housekeeping. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, I just want to run through the creative team. Got, obviously, at the helm, Tim Burton. Um, do you know who their first choice was? Oh, no, I don't. Wes Craven. Ah, interesting. That's What really a different film it would have been. Um, so, Tim Burton is directing a script by Michael McDowell and Warren Skarran from a story by Michael McDowell and Larry Wilson. Uh, Larry Wilson was also one of the producers. We've got a score by Danny Elfman, of course, uh, someone who we'll talk about a lot over yeah. various different episodes, I'm sure. The editor was Jane Curson. The creature and makeup effects were by Robert Short. The production designer was Beau Welch. Director of photography, Thomas E. Ackerman. The uh, costume designer was Aggie Guerard Rogers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm saying that right, Guerrard, Guerard. Gwerard. Guerrard. I guess. And uh, just to quickly run through the cast, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis playing Adam and Barbara Maitland. We've got Catherine O'Hara and Jeffrey Jones as the Dietzes, who are the uh, living couple who move into the house. Their daughter is Lydia Dietz, played by Winona Ryder. And their friend, advisor, guy, is... Interior an designer. Opho... Interior designer slash paranormal investigator is uh, played by Glenn Shaddix and then we've got receptionist of the kind of bureaucracy of the afterlife is played by Patrice Martinez, and then Juno, the Maitland's caseworker, is played by legend Sylvia Sidney. Uh, obviously there's a lot of other cast members as well, but those are our sort of main characters. Um, it was released in 1988, and it won some awards, but not loads. It did win the Oscar for Best Makeup, and not nominated for a single other Academy Award in that year, so it was, um, it's one of the kind of few awards where it's nominated for in one category and won in that category yeah. but it did win some saturn awards so it won best horror film best makeup and best supporting actress for sylvia sydney hmm. it was made for a budget of 15 million dollars and it grossed in only this is only in north america it grossed 74.7 million so it did unbelievably well um Interesting. The uh, of the fifteen million dollar budget, only one million dollars was assigned to special effects. Which, wow. when you think about what's involved, you've got puppetry, stop motion, blue screen, prosthetics, all of this stuff. Only a million dollars assigned to it, which is just—it's unbelievable. <laughs>
1: Look what you can do with a million dollars. That's extraordinary.
0: Well, this is something we keep coming back to is actually when you put budgetary restraints on people, yeah. their creativity is unleashed in a, a really exciting way. Yeah. Would you like to hear some alternative casting?
1: I'd love to hear some alternative casting, yes please.
0: Oh, I, the, the main person I didn't mention in the main cast list, Michael Keaton has Beetlejuice. <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that. (laughs) To be fair,
1: he's only in the movie for about 17 minutes. He only gets about 17 minutes of screen time.
0: That was one of the things that surprised me the most, is how little mm. Beetlejuice there is.
1: Yeah, you don't need any more, though. You
0: don't need any more of him, mm. no, you really don't. So um, Delia Dietz, uh, who is played by Catherine O'Hara, that part was originally signed on for Angelica Houston, but she had to drop out because she was poorly, and Catherine O'Hara came on. I love Catherine O'Hara. Me too. She's yeah. wonderful.
1: I've always loved her, and then the world seemed to fall in love with her on Schitt's Creek.
0: Now, I've not seen Schitt's Creek. I think you'd enjoy it. You've got yeah, to get through okay. the first season.
1: Once you got through the first yeah. season, it starts to make it... You it it understands what it is more yeah
0: yeah. I mean at the time that this film came out Catherine O'Hara was probably best known as Kevin's mum in Home Alone that was after this wasn't it well it was Home Alone I I think Home Alone and Home Alone 2 would both come out by the time this came out I'm going to have to double check that because I'm sure Double check it was
1: 90s yeah 1990 Home Alone (laughs) sorry
0: All right, scrap that she would become best known to audiences as (laughs) Kevin's mum in Home Alone um, with that incredible scream
1: yes yes I I, I, I love Catherine O'Hara she's Home Alone probably her most straight role and even in that there's something kind of eccentric about her
0: and the other bit of casting information I've got is for uh, the role of Lydia Dietz who is played by Winona Ryder lots of actresses auditioned for this role sure. um, of that generation so you've got Sarah Jessica Parker, Brooke Shields, mm-hmm. Laurie Laughlin, Diane Lane, Justine Bateman who will always be Nellie Bluth to me from (laughs) Arrested (laughs) Development. Molly Ringwald, Juliette Lewis and Jennifer Connolly. I mean, looking down this cast list, there's a few names who are in here who pop up time and time again for Tim Burton. Not all of them, interestingly, um, Mm -hmm. but a few of them pop up again and again. And um, from the cast list, there's a couple of names who, like Catherine O'Hara and Glenn Shaddix, particularly, who just have done so much voice work. Oh, yeah. So, um, waffling on, as we are, I just, this is why I shouldn't do housekeeping because I get distracted and want to <laughs> chat on about stuff. And something I just wanted to t- t- tell you is, um, so Bo Welch, who was mm-hmm. the production designer, originally wasn't up for that job. Tim Burton wanted to hire a chap called Anton first, who had been the production designer on The Company of Wolves and Full Metal Jacket. Right. But first went on to make a film, which is a real, it's its one of the key films of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Okay. It's called High Spirits.
1: No. No, I'm not familiar with it.
0: It would be quite a good follow-up to Beetlejuice because a Pietro Tool owns a dilapidated Irish castle that's his mm-hmm. family home um, and they can't afford to run it. So him and the staff, decide to um, turn it into a hotel and have a load of fake ghosts. And so a, a tour bus of Americans turn up to come and see this haunted Irish castle. But then it's actually haunted. It's haunted by Daryl Hannah and Liam Neeson. Oh my God. <laughs> As these lovers. It's so weird. I really, I'd love you to watch it because it's absolutely weird bonkers and it's um it's fairly shit (laughs) (laughs) and apparently this alan um, anton first chap did regret his decision to go and make High Spirits instead sure. of making Beetlejuice you can see why yeah, um, yeah the chap that he got was Bo Welch um, who would then go on to make Edward Scissorhands and Batman Returns with Tim Burton but more importantly to me being a hopeless romantic Bo Welch met his future wife on the set of Beetlejuice oh. Catherine O'Hara oh how lovely which is lovely and they got married in 1992 and are still together and just like lovely gorgeous couple it makes me really happy so right I'll stop banging on about that. Ed, I would like to hear, what's your story with Beetlejuice? Um, when did you first see hmm. it? Can you remember? And why have you disappeared? Sorry, You've I hidden didn't. yourself from me. <laughs> I had. I did. I hid did myself. Did you need to be alone for a moment? <laughs> <laughs> alone in my
1: cupboard. Um. <laughs> yeah, I can't Remember when I first saw it. It's it's a film that I was aware of from childhood, but I don't think I saw it until I was probably in my 20s by the time I actually saw it for the first time, mm. which is strange because it it was a film that I always wanted to see mm. uh, having loved Batman, you know, Michael Keaton. Remain a massive Michael Keaton fan to this time uh, to this day. Mm. I will always watch a Michael Keaton movie. With Michael Keaton, you always know that there's going to be something interesting even if the film's terrible. There's going to be at least one performance that is worth watching in some way because it's just going to yeah. be its always going to be something a bit off kilter.
0: He's got a kind of like there's a slight explosive quality to him. Oh yeah. Like even if he's delivering a fairly straight character is he just going to like throw a chair through the wall? Because he might.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. When you look at him you think I don't know why I would cast you as Batman and we'll talk about this more one day when we talk about Batman but it actually it makes perfect sense that Batman would be this on edge kind of loose cannon nutcase. Yeah. Um, anyway <laughs> Uh, Um, I
0: I, I share your sentiment I'm a massive Michael Keaton fan I think he's fantastic and I remember I knew about Beetlejuice before like really understanding and when I I was like oh yeah Beetlejuice the movie and I was like it's got Michael Keaton in it and I was like oh god it's Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin oh my god it's all these people and like it was a word I knew without knowing anything about the story. I mean, I still didn't really know what the story was when I sat down to watch it this first time, Um, (laughs) which was lovely. It was so nice to watch a good Tim Burton film. (laughs)
1: Well, let's uh, chat for a moment about Tim Burton. How how do we feel about him generally?
0: I think that he was a really, truly exceptional director up until about 1999. I don't rate anything he's done this millennium. I don't think. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I think um, Big Fish has got some stuff about it that I admire or like, but I don't like it generally as a film. I think probably what a lot of people think about Tim Burton he's become a parody of himself I'm longing for him to make something from his own mind rather than just putting his aesthetic onto a story that or a property that already exists he's yeah. become a victim of his own nostalgia I think interesting there are things about his Sweeney Todd that I like
1: I was going to say yeah Sweeney Todd's alright
0: it's yeah I mean I would really love to have seen that with some people who can actually sing it <laughs> it's some of the best music ever I love Sweeney Todd the musical so much and Mm. though, like oh i just i wish that someone who could actually sing it had done it but uh, but like aesthetically i think it's nice tim burton's aesthetic really suits that kind of genre but i just i wish that tim burton had like go and put himself in a cabin in the woods on his own for a bit Mm. and like and come up with something original although that being said beetlejuice was not his story what do you think of tim burton
1: um yeah uh, sort of very very similar feelings. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking now at his filmography. Since 2000, he's made... Did I see Big Eyes? I can't remember if I saw it or not. Well, if I did see it, it didn't linger in the memory. Amy Adams movie, I remember... I, I've,
0: not, I've not seen it, but I don't I don't think it's very good from what mm. I've
1: heard. I think his, his animated movies since 2000 are more interesting than his live-action movies. Um, Corpse Bride and Frank and Weenie are yeah. both perfectly good fun. But yeah, his, his last really good live-action movie, I would say, was probably Sleepy Hollow. And I
0: love Sleepy Hollow
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's great fun So that's Tim Burton before he sort of went a bit sour And it's also Mm -hmm. Johnny Depp before he became a massive self-parody Yeah, it's really great It's only Miss in the 90s for me is Mars Attacks.
0: Do you not like Mars Attacks?
1: I really don't. I, I think it's so dull. Yeah, me, me and Jem tried to watch it again a couple of years ago. It's only about like 100 minutes long, maybe. But it felt so long. It was so dreary. I, yeah, I, I just... I, I don't think we finished it, actually. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so not a fan of Mars Attacks, but his other 90s movies, I think, are great. Yeah, Beetlejuice is probably... Yeah, well, it is. It is the, the first of the movies that you think of as Tim Burton movies. He'd done... one feature prior to this, which was Pee Wee's Big Adventure.
0: I've not seen it, have you? No, neither
1: have I. And yeah, I don't really have any intention to. I think it's probably not for me. And I suspect it might not really have been for Tim Burton either.
0: I don't know if he's gone past a point of no return, really. And you know, uh, Tim Burton is one of those directors who I think of as, he's one of those people who just works with the same people over and over and over again. Although, actually, when you look at, you know these films that we pointed out from the 90s and the 80s as being his kind of best movies, there's a little bit of crossover, but not masses you know you've got obviously Winona Ryder then worked with him again on Edward Scissorhands but she didn't then go on to work with him in everything ever yeah and I think really it's when Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter into the, in the same pictures and that's when it gets daft it's when he starts just centering those two and not working with anybody else when it the quality starts going down I'm not suggesting I mean I love Helena Bonham Carter I think she's fantastic mm-hmm. and a little bit like his aesthetic I'm a mm-hmm. bit like, okay, I've seen this now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and you but not only have I seen your aesthetic before, you're also not telling me a new story. Like I know Alice in Wonderland mm-hmm. already. What else? And um, yeah, I think like you say, it's the it's his animations, Frankenweenie and, and Corpse Bride that stand out because they're kind of they're they're, te- they're telling me something different.
1: I think they're the movies that Tim Burton is more interested in making. Yeah. But then
0: look at Dark Shadows. That was his. That was him wanting to remake something from his childhood that he really loved. Sure. Um, and it's absolute garbage it's terrible i've not seen it oh, it's it's pants don't bother don't <laughs> waste your time watch beetlejuice again <laughs> 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 yeah, so um, let's talk about the, the cast and the performances.
1: So I've, I've watched it twice. But the first time through, I sort of roughly divided the cast into four categories. The characters in the four categories. Oh, OK. Um, uh, so we've got Adam and Barbara, the married mm-hmm. couple at the centre of it, who are having a, a holiday at home in their big dilapidated old house. Uh, so I've, I've then got uh, The Living as a separate category of characters, which includes mm-hmm. uh, the Dietzes and Otho also jane the relative who's just jane who
0: can absolutely fuck off
1: yeah can't she just
0: (laughs) jane what a piece of shit (laughs) fuck you jane (laughs)
1: yeah i I, I love all all we ever really see of jane is that she wants to sell the house and make some money like she's she's bothering them at the start and then they die and they see her out of the window she she comes to pay her respects all in black and she's Brought the little girl all in black with the black hat and oh, full morning gub, And then as they're driving away, you just see the for sale sign outside the house. Like the first thing they've done is just, yeah, we're going to sell this shit now.
0: Also, she has, she does. And it's just, it's a really sweet and it's not overdone, but it's just a really kind of tender little nugget of the Maitland story is their desire for children. And the yep. fact they haven't been able to have any yet. They're going to try again. And fucking Jane. Yeah. comes in and is like, really, this house, should it should be a, a couple with a family. Yeah, And it's like, you piece of shit, Jane. That's so Such horrible. Like, poor Barbara. It's just, I, I mean, she can absolutely fuck off. I, yeah. It upsets me, actually, that she doesn't get any kind of comeuppance in the film. She's just a dick who's there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she
1: gets what she wants. Yeah, yeah. it's infuriating. Um, so the other categories I've got, the the dead broadly. So mm-hmm. all of that bureaucracy All the people waiting in the waiting rooms Case worker and receptionist and, and everybody And then I've got Beetlejuice on his own Interesting So that was that was sort of what, what my initial thought was And that was sort of how I made notes When I was watching it the second time through but When I was watching it the second time through It occurred to me that we've got Two different protagonist-antagonist relationships working You've got the the Maitlands versus the Dietzes Is that one antagonist pairing And then you've got Lydia versus Beetlejuice Is I think the other antagonist pairing um, And that I think is actually That conflict is the real heart of the story because actually the film keeps trying to yeah it works really hard to subvert your expectations from the very start you've got that opening shot which is like classic horror movie stuff it's a journey over some trees it's yeah oh it sort of harks back to the shining and then immediately oh there's a spider climbing over this and ah it's a model so right from the very first shot it's trying to subvert expectations and then within nine minutes of the film who you are led to believe are the central protagonists of the story uh, are dead Mm. and they are the central protagonists of the story but I think the story it really wants to tell is Lydia's story um, because her whole conflict is, I want to be dead. And the journey she has to go on is to realise that, no, she doesn't want to be dead. And you've got Beetlejuice with this opposite one. He wants to be alive, and she mm. can make that happen. And you've got that clash. And that's, I think, where the real conflict of the story is. And the mm. battle between the Maitlands and the Dietzes is is sort of peripheral to that
0: it's interesting as well though isn't it that like given that kind of central conflict this Beetlejuice versus Lydia it it doesn't actually kick in until quite late in the film no it takes ages to establish itself which is a good thing though because I I think it's really important that we get to know these two kind of rival family units you know you've got this gorgeous couple who are so sort of sweet and naive and kind of old fashioned Mm. but also there's like a childishness to them like they run everywhere.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like this opening bit of the film where she like they, they're running backwards and, and forwards and wrestling with each other on the sofa and then they yes. run downstairs and run to the car and it's like ah they've got yes. so much energy, it's delightful. Um versus the as well, Father Dietz, I can't remember what he's called. Charles who aspires to this kind of slower pace of life moving from the big city and then He just
1: wants to relax.
0: And then this yuppie wife <laughs> yes. I wrote down in my notes that first shot of Delia Dietz walking into the house Mm -hmm. in her kind of black 80s kind of power thing and her amazing hair. It really reminded me of um, Julia from Hellraiser. Oh, right, yeah. And these two moving scenes, I don't know whether they whether it's intentional in any way, shape or form, but it's so familiar that couple moving in to a big old dilapidated house. The husband is mad keen and completely oblivious to his Mm -hmm. wife's distaste for this place. And she has got this shock of incredible red hair, Very 80s power suit, so kind of city and just like disgusted by the surroundings. I was like, this, this just, it looks exactly like the start of Hellraiser.
1: Yeah, Um, Uh, I hadn't made that connection, but yeah. I don't think it means anything. No, no, not at all. (laughs) But no, but no, it's it's yeah, it's that it's that classic horror movie thing of people moving into an unfamiliar place.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly um, that horror trope of the unknowing interlopers who come in and disrespect the yeah. the place that they are and pay the consequences. But with Beetlejuice, as with any any other film where you've got this kind of ghost versus new family thing, mm-hmm. like tension going on. It's like, who does this place belong to? And I love um, there's that time jump when they go, when the Maitlands go to visit Juno for the first time and they come back and they've been in there six months or whatever and the house is totally different. And it's, I mean, they are the two kind of archetypal aesthetics of Tim Burton's work. You've got the kind of twisty, curly, black and white, dark, gothic, etching style versus the kind of pastels quite 1950s kind of nuclear family thing and the Maitlands have got that nostalgia and that kind of that old-fashioned vibe and then you've got the the art the yuppie artists from New York with their incredible like gothic and chrome you know Yeah, you get Um, get that
1: same um, aesthetic conflict in Edward Scissorhands don't you between that sort of picket fence World yeah. and the the yeah the gothic a yeah. uh, place that uh, Edward hands inhabits
0: the mansion on the hill that overlooks everything like it's a little toy town yeah. you know it's funny because. Um,
1: like, like what I think most people think of when they think of Tim Burton is that sort of gothic aesthetic, that that sort of wild off-kilter almost cartoony thing. But yeah, you you're right that that sort of conservative Americana and mm. white picket fence aesthetic is just as important, certainly to to this early work, but I don't think that's what immediately springs to most people's minds when they think of Tim Burton.
0: No, but I mean even in, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas, mm-hmm. the the real world is there, but the kind of Christmas town versus Halloween town it's like that is the Tim Burton he, he uses those to represent different kind of identities and societies yeah. that are kind of coming into conflict with each other but actually both have to kind of coexist, which is at the center of all of his films, really, isn't it? Um, yeah. well, all the stuff that I would say is like a pure Tim Burton, not him directing a story that already exists in yeah. the canon.
1: yeah not not him taking a payday yeah. Urgh.
0: <laughs> Urgh. <laughs> Which you know and I
1: can't criticise the man for taking a payday when he wants to make his own work as well, you know. Yeah, but yeah. I, it's yeah true. I didn't feel like his heart was in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> no. I've not seen Dumbo, but I don't believe that it feels like it's in that either.
0: I've not seen Dumbo either. No. I don't I don't want to. No, no. I don't I don't really actually have I seen any of the quote unquote live action disneys i've seen a couple of them
1: um they're they're a real mixed bag uh jungle books all right is that um, john favreau yes i think so but lion king is also john favreau and that's really dull beauty and the beast i'm not into that which is a shame because the original is one of my favorites
0: i think one of the things that bothers me most is the fact they keep calling them live action sure that they're, they're not live action some of them, some of them have some live action people in but it's just a different type of animation.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> it's. I mean, yeah, you, you, you can say that about the MCU as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These films are largely not live action.
0: No. <laughs> Ed, you haven't told me if you like Beetlejuice. Oh, yes, do I, I do. you like it?
1: Yes, I do very much. Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. You can see a director having the first opportunity to really play with all of the toys in his box. You know yeah. what I mean, and that's that's yeah. what he's doing. He's just he's having an absolute blast making this movie. Probably when you look at a couple of his later films, probably slightly more coherent bits of filmmaking, uh, like in Edward Scissorhands, for example. But yeah, Beetlejuice is I think more fun. The comedy stays just the right side of zany yes. for me. It there there is in danger at times of teetering over the edge into wackiness and zaniness, and I. Mm. Not yeah, that.
0: I think I can't really be doing with shenanigans. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> like um, the kind of is it post credits or it's kind of, just pre credits in in Beetlejuice? There's Michael Keaton in the waiting room with the guy with the shrunken head. Yes. That is very close to a bit eye rolly for me. Like um, that's mm. verging on too much shenanigan. <laughs> yeah,
1: it, it's also looking at it with twenty twenty three eyes. Um, Probably culturally insensitive. Yeah. I would say.
0: Yeah. For the majority of the film it is exactly pitched right for comedy as opposed to just shenanigans, which yes. I'm not. And it genuinely made me laugh. Like I was oh, yeah. chuckling away.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is funny. There's some great lines in it. particularly Catherine O'Hara and um the chap who plays Upho. They both make yeah. me laugh consistently. Yeah. Just to uh, come back to the characters for a moment, um, I don't know how you, how you feel about this, but I, I feel like all of all of the characters are trapped in some way. So you've got uh, Charles Dietz, who's sort of trapped by his job, um, like he's constantly sort of he's on the phone to his boss and constantly trying to find ways to make more money for the company. You've got Delia, Delia Dietz, who's sort of trapped in the countryside. She wants to be <laughs> in the city, making art and doing all of the stuff that she wants to do and having an exciting life Mm -hmm. um Lydia who feels trapped by life you've got like the whole world of the dead that's sort of trapped by this interminable bureaucracy (laughs) you've got Adam Barbara who are sort of physically trapped in the house they can't go Mm -hmm. out he steps off the porch and it's this sort of desert wasteland with a sand snake and and you've got Beetlejuice himself who is trapped somewhere he's sort of trapped in death and yeah he, he he needs to be set free.
0: That hadn't occurred to me, but I think you're absolutely right. And they are all kind of... Because of the the Beetlejuice being kind of... The representation of his trappedness is within that model. The access to the kind of um, government building of the underworld (laughs) that they go to is all through a wall in the house and stuff. So it does feel like we're all stuck in this house. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We only venture outside the house at the very beginning before the Maitlands die. I love that the kind of bureaucracy the thing about it that appeals to me and it's like with john wick where mm. it's like you've got a glimpse into a world and there's this whole system in place that you've got no idea about it there's the it's the mundanity of the yeah. extraordinary i yeah. just love it it's so appealing i just want to spend loads of time down there and see what they're all up to and see yeah. how it all works
1: yeah it's this sort of this hideous mirror image of of exactly what life is as well
0: but also i love the, the i think the 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 rule is that um, if you die by suicide you have to become a civil servant yeah well there's that Um, there's that
1: really grim joke really grim joke yeah with the receptionist
0: Miss Argentina
1: (laughs) yes yeah being oh if I'd known it would be like this I wouldn't have had my little accident and she shows her her wrists that have been slashed it's just it's so good like both me and Jem just we looked at each other like,
0: oh! <laughs> but as, there's, like, this film, it's a PG. Something that was interesting that I read about was the fact that it was Tim Burton, kind of as a director, and the kind of films that he was making, including Beetlejuice, that led to the creation of the Twelve Certificate.
1: Oh, uh, That's interesting. i had heard that uh, Poltergeist was was the movie oh, really? that, that, that mainly did that yeah um i know oh, okay i've i've seen yeah beetlejuice i think has gone through several different certifications over the time i've definitely seen it with a 15 certificate on it
0: that's um, really interesting
1: and yeah i but yeah i think you're right it has been pg it sometimes as well it,
0: it was certainly it? released as a pg and like marketed as a family film and yeah. i think like sometimes on streaming services it pops up in, like, kids' movies, there's adult subject matter in there that yeah. I would be more concerned about than the horror elements, because yes. kids like to be scared, and I don't think any of the horror is really actually that scary. No, the horror's um, fine. But the, yeah, the, the woman who's slashed her wrists, like, Beetlejuice is so leery, and I know that the script went through quite a lot of big changes, certainly as far as the character of Lydia is concerned. Mm. In the film, as it exists, obviously, she he tries to turn her into a child bride, um, but it's to fulfil a function, whereas in the um, original script, apparently, it was a very sexual thing. It was like he was lusting after her um, and, like, always trying to assault her. Yeah, it wouldn't have been fun. I'm really interested in that classification thing. Ah, it's saying... So, I think it depa- I think it's UK versus American classifications. Sure. So, I think in terms of British classifications, it was Batman that um, was the thing that led to the creation of the 12 certificate ah. uh, but maybe in america it was poltergeist but yeah it was it was this thing of like there's darkness and then there's adult content and they're different mm. things and beetlejuice contains adult content yeah it's so, the, it's,
1: it's the suicide stuff mostly because there's yeah. there's quite a bit of talk about suicide
0: the entire system that the maitlands are trapped within is mm-hmm. Based on people who have killed themselves. And oh, you know, when they go down and they're being taken to see Juno, mm-hmm. the guy who I don't I can't remember exactly what he's credited as. I think it might be Roadkill guy. Sure. <laughs> who's sort of on that pulley system like yeah. um like the doors in monsters inc. Yeah
1: he's just got that massive tire track up his thing. Massive body, hasn't tire it?
0: track up his thing. Yeah. So he's killed himself by car. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, like, presumably. Yeah. Just,
1: presumably. Like, jumped off a traffic bridge or something. And there's the the other guy who's clearly hanged himself. He's yeah. like just on this pulley system just putting folders on desks.
0: It's so macabre and mundane mm. and therefore funny. I think there's just, there's so mm. much amusement to be had. How much do you think
1: kids would pick up on the suicide gags? Like the My Little Accident joke, I don't know if I would have really understood it when I was little. No. I think it would have gone over my head.
0: I think I probably would have understood that gag, but I don't think I would have put together that, that it's like, they've all killed themselves.
1: As a teenager, I would have got it. But if I'd seen Yeah, it, yeah when i first knew about beetlejuice it would have just gone well over my head so yeah anything over 12 i would have got i
0: don't i don't think i would have really fully understood lydia like lydia's connection i think i would have gone kind of like oh goth girl i don't mm. think i would have understood the kind of her sort of suicidal impulses you know her her desire for death i wouldn't have got that sure. um as a kid <laughs> michael keaton man Michael, I mean, like, <laughs> he's, he's,
1: he's, he's a force of nature in this. It's um, he's amazing. And you, you really, really, really don't need any more of him than you get. Like, my big concern with the forthcoming sequel is that I suspect it might end up being very Beetlejuice heavy. And it, it if it is, then that will be too much. Because every time he shows up, he dominates he dominates mm. every scene he's in. Yeah, should we, should we chat about him for a moment? So when, when we first yeah. meet Beetlejuice, we don't actually see him at first. Uh, no. We see him like just the back of his head over the shoulder. Uh, and he's sort of chuckling to himself and muttering to himself as he's reading through a newspaper. He's looking for work in the obituaries section.
0: <laughs> which is
1: a, just a fabulous introduction to this character. And then the first time we actually see him properly, he sort of invades the TV there in the attic. Um, Mm. And it's this pastiche of sort of adverts that you see on American TV that have just been sort of paid for by some local business. And it's this guy dressed as a cowboy trying to sell whatever nonsense they're trying to sell. I I suppose it sort of speaks to the Maitland's naivety that they would even contemplate getting involved with this guy because there, there is nothing about Beetlejuice that says, oh, yeah, I would trust this guy yeah absolutely nothing about him
0: yeah you're like the maitlands do have this kind of gorgeous naivety to them although we say that but um, i mean aside from all of the uh chaos he does mm-hmm. actually do what he says he will like oh, yeah. he genuinely scares the Dietzes. Mm-hmm. and at the end when lydia is like help them help the maitlands in their kind of their sort of um withering away to nothing yeah and um, he does <laughs> it's just he
1: does all the other stuff as well the other way that lydia and Beetlejuice are sort of set up as protagonist and antagonist is that they both offer a solution to the problem at the core of the narrative they both they both have a way of ending this conflict between the Maitlands and the Dietzes it just so happens that Beetlejuice's way is chaotic and awful um and (laughs) ultimately Lydia brings them all together
0: I love Michael Keaton's performance I just think he's wonderful you know I love that he ad-libbed most of his dialogue it's one of those performances that I think you can tell is controlled in its chaos Mm -hmm. he's not just flailing he is being deliberate he understands the kind of rhythm of the scene and when to pull it back and when to really go for it and I think he's uh, it's uh, like really masterful and joyous all of the work from all of the performers in this film is joyful I hope I believe that they all just had the most wonderful time (laughs) I suspect so I hope so they, yeah. they all
1: look like they're having a ball, yeah. Particularly in like the, the famous dinner party scene, <laughs> uh, where, yeah, they just yeah, they look like they're having an absolute gas.
0: But like with that dinner party scene, it, like back to that thing about the Maitlands' naivety and their kind of um, their innocence, it's like the most frightening thing they can think to do is make a load of people dance the calypso. It's like yeah. it's so sweet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, although the the, fir- the first thing they do to try to scare them off is. Is horrible.
0: Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's that's my favourite effect in the film. I think is is when she pulls her face off and the eyeballs come out. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. It's so great. <laughs> um, why do you think those yeah those attempts don't work the the, the really horrible ones that they try initially because they're mm, horrible
0: yeah they are really horrible I mean I think it's to do with in the handbook that they've got it like Lydia picks up the book and is reading about it and I think it's that thing of a, a connection in some way to death mm. and Lydia thinks about it and is kind of longing for it and wants to see it mm. whereas the the kind of adults don't
1: but. They certainly see Beetlejuice. And I wonder if that's. So when Beetlejuice shows up to scare them as mm. the Beetlejuice rattlesnake, I think it's to do with how. So when the Maitlands try to scare them, it's open a cupboard and there she is pulling her face off, mm. go through a door, there he is with his head chopped off. It's all quite easy to ignore. Whereas when Beetlejuice does it, he starts as. A handrail, the banister, and it's uh, Delia puts her hand and realizes, oh, there's something wrong mm. here. And it's that physical contact, and oh, this is a, a snake, and it's, mo- and oh shit. And so once <laughs> that physical contact has been made, it's, I guess, to do with sort of that initial subtlety and then he can go wow once he's been noticed
0: yeah I guess it's a kind of um, a mastery of his ghostliness like he Mm. understands how it works he understands kind of tricks and tips and the business of being a ghost and and how to interact with the physical world because he's just been doing it for longer I mean how old is Beetlejuice I mean he says he was around in the um, he says he he was around for the Black Death
1: (laughs) yeah and he had a great time I
0: had a great time
1: (laughs) he says he says, "I've seen the Exorcist hundred and sixty times, and it keeps getting funnier uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> um shall we talk about Lydia Dietz, who I think, like you said earlier is is like the kind of heart of the film.
1: Is she, do you think, a sort of surrogate for Tim Burton himself?
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: I think she's the character he feels closest to.
0: And I think that probably it's a um, a kindred spirit. Yeah. And I think Tim Burton is extremely good at representing people who feel different. Like the kids at school who were kind of weirdos and a bit dark, like goth kids. You know, yeah. he, he's very good at representing them on screen sympathetically. I, I think Lydia Dietz is wonderful. I think she's a fabulous Character.
1: Yeah, when you read that list of alternative castings as well I to every name you mentioned I was like nah
0: no nah, no nah. no, um, she's, Winona is she's perfect. perfect I think Winona Ryder's wonderful I think yeah. she's a really fantastic actor uh, like I love watching her and yeah. she's great as this and I think she, she's she got a real sense of humour about it as well in her portrayal like she yeah she's she's fantastic and, yeah she um,
1: straddles that divide really nicely yeah she's she's funny she's really funny
0: if I had seen this film as like a 12 year old I absolutely would be dressing like Lydia Dietz <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, I don't know, I'd probably be dressing like Beetlejuice
0: (laughs) Well, you know, and with good reason Iconic, iconic striped suit (laughs) Uh, the um, costume designer talked a bit about um, the design for that um, striped suit. She wanted to give the effect of like prison stripes, mm-hmm. um, oh, which right. I think yeah goes back to what you were saying about all of the the characters being trapped. It's like well yeah Beetlejuice is a like a literal prisoner. There's a whole web of rules around how to get him, how to release him, how to put him back, and all this stuff. There's a lot of
1: law. Yeah, the, the rules mostly revolve around saying his name. Essentially, you, you you've got to say his name three times to uh, to release him or to put him back mm-hmm. um and also to make the magic door to the world of the dead work you've got to knock three times
0: ah that's good that, that's pleasing rule of three um his name beetlejuice uh mm. Betelgeuse Betelgeuse. is um do you know where it comes from i can't remember
1: i can only think it's something to do with demonology but I could be way off base.
0: You may well be right, but yeah. uh, um, <laughs> it's, um, it's one of the stars in the Constellation Orion. It is, um, yes. It's the Hand of Orion, which is lovely, and uh, when you learn that, it in no way uh, gives understanding to... I think it's just a good name. It doesn't yeah. mean anything for the yeah. character. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: yes. <well, laughs> just, just, well, well, while we're on Beetlejuice's name... There's that moment when he's trying to get Lydia to work out what his name is. And she gets Beetle straight away. And then it takes forever for her to get the word juice out of an image of some juice being poured into a glass. She she goes, (laughs) breakfast drink, orange breakfast. You're an idiot. What is wrong with you?
0: Beetle breakfast.
1: (laughs) Beetle breakfast. What? No, stop it.
0: But that's the thing. Like, this film... Which could, at various points, get really bogged down in its own kind yeah. of gruesomeness, its own darkness. Mm. It's just always kept bubbling along with some lovely comedy. <laughs> A lot of it, though, is Danny Elfman's music. Can we talk about Danny Elfman for a
1: bit? Yes, please. I yeah, please, because I'll, I'll be interested to know what you think. Because actually, I was thinking about this. I don't have much to say about Danny Elfman's score for this, mm. other than it fits the movie. It fits everything yeah. that's happening. Um, it's great. It's it's perfect. It hasn't lingered in my memory at all. Like the music that I remember from Beetlejuice is all the Harry Belafonte Calypso stuff.
0: No, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I kind of, like like you say, the, the bits of music that really stand out for me are the, the Calypso um, sort of set pieces. But it kind of reinvigorated my love of Danny Alfman I think he's wonderful. And you're exactly right. I think that the... The music in this completely, it complements what you're seeing on screen rather than dominating or distracting. I think that the opening credit sequence and the music that plays with that, like you were saying last week about the Van Morrison song, you just Mm. had to have a little bop. And I had to have a little boogie. It was so like, it's so (laughs) energetic and joyful. Like Tim Burton's best work, Danny Elfman's best work, manages to blend sinister, dark, gothic Mm woomfy kind of thing with real joyful, like real like
1: there's a sense of fun to it
0: I think what that opening piece of music does really well is tell you that you are going to go to some dark places in this film but don't Mm -hmm. worry it is all going to be okay you know it it sets the tone beautifully yeah like Mm. just gives the opening of the film a real injection of energy you said before about you know um, like that opening shot I completely agree with you it really reminded me of The Shining Mm. um, where you're that kind of um, aerial shot of the town the camera is driving along the road up to the big house and in The Shining they're driving along in the car up to the overlook and the music over at the beginning of The Shining it's just like nothing good is going to happen (laughs) this is as positive as this film is going to get (laughs) it's downhill from here. Whereas in Beetlejuice, it's like, you think this is fun? You just wait. You just wait how fun it's it's
1: going to get. You know? So, do you know, um, so before Danny Elfman was a film composer, he was in a band called Oingo Boingo. Who were this sort of mad, sort of art rock, postmodern 80s band.
0: Amazing. Yeah, sort
1: sort of worth checking out. If uh, yeah, if you're yeah. into that, if you're into that kind of stuff, um, uh,
0: yeah, I will. Yeah,
1: so he's always had this sort of playfulness and sense of fun.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Of
1: course, he he is the voice of Jack Skellington.
0: Yeah, uh, I know. Nightmare which Before I Christmas. think he had to really fight for that, um, for that because he, I, um, I can't, his partner was saying how he'd like yeah he'd written all this beautiful music and obviously mm-hmm. he'd recorded all of it um, with himself singing to send on to Tim Burton. Yeah. Um, but, um, and then he was like, I really think I should sing it. Like, I really think I should sing it. Um, and he
1: absolutely should.
0: Um, would you like to play a fun game? Always. Would you like to play which three Tim Burton films did Danny Elfman not do the score for? Oh, blimey. So starting from Pee Wee's Big Adventure all mm-hmm. the way through to the recent Wednesday series. There are 22, and right. Danny Elfman has worked on all but three of them. Do you know what they are, or can you work it out?
1: All right, well, so, yeah, Sweeney Todd, because Sondheim, yeah. obviously. Mm, I would guess Pee-Wee's Big Adventure, but I wouldn't necessarily go out on a limb for that. You can put uh, a
0: pin in that and I'll come back to it. i put a pin in it. that, Yeah
1: process of elimination slightly Uh, certainly he did the music for Batman Batman Returns Edward Scissorhands uh, Wood. I would think he did as well but I can't say for sure because I've not actually seen it that's on my list no I'd love to I just haven't Um, Mars Attacks I think he did Sleepy Hollow yeah for sure I'm sure he scored that oh this is difficult um
0: it's hard, isn't it? It um, is really uh, hard. It's unfair of me, really, because no, I tried to play the game with myself when I read that he don't. There were only three that he hadn't done, and like you, I guessed Sweeney Todd, but I wouldn't have had a clue. All right, so otherwise.
1: Sweeney Todd, I'm gonna go for. I'm gonna go yeah. for Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and I'm gonna. Go for Planet of the Apes. I think I'm wrong.
0: No, um, well, yeah, uh, you are are wrong, but that was really hard. So, yeah, you were right with Sweeney Todd. And then the other one that he didn't do, you touched on it, Ed Wood. Oh, did he not? He didn't do Edward, um, but apparently they had just after working so closely together consecutively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it just they just had had enough of each other and they had a fallout. Sure. And then he did Edward, and then after Edward, he was like, "Let's be friends again. This is Daft. Come on, mm-hmm. d- come and do, uh, come and work with me." Yes. Um And then the other one, um, we don't know why he didn't do this. I imagine it's just a kind of like scheduling conflict or something. But mm-hmm. it's at Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Oh right. Well, I've not seen it actually. No,
1: neither have I. Um, but
0: because, to me, Tim Burton is not a drawer anymore.
1: No, not for me either, really. Which is kind of sad.
0: Yeah, it would have to be something that really piqued my interest.
1: I'm at the point now, I don't want to see a Tim Burton film that's a massive departure from Tim Burton. If I'm going mm. to see a Tim Burton film and I don't get what I think of as a Tim Burton film in some way I'd be disappointed in the same way that if I went to see a Wes Anderson film and mm. got sort of documentary naturalism I'd Yes <laughs> I, I'd be like what, uh, why, whoa, what is happening this isn't yeah. what I came for
0: They have both painted themselves into corners in a way <laughs> They have N- Nice perfectly
1: lovely corners to paint yourself into
0: I love Wes Anderson I think he's great
1: Yeah me too I'm a big fan Yeah the so uh, I, I don't know You probably picked up on this as well uh, when they first arrive in the Uh, sort of bureaucratic office in the waiting Mm. room Um, they come into the doorway and behind them is the uh, green sign that says no exit and (laughs) that can only be a uh, reference to the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre um, tell me more Ed tell me more (laughs) yeah so he wrote the play no exit in 1944 that was first performed and essentially it's three characters are brought to a room in hell And they're locked inside uh, by a valet. And they'd expected to be tortured and to be punished for all eternity. Instead, what they find is that they're just there. In this room, trapped. The play itself called No Exit. There's no way out. And this is where the phrase, hell is other people, comes from. Ah. OK, um, so I can only think when I saw that sign and everything we've talked about, the characters all being trapped um, mm. and particularly this sort of afterlife limbo. Yeah, that can only be a reference to Sartre.
0: Yeah. Just now an interesting little tangent. Out to me. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's um, a really lovely selection of um, dead weirdos in the waiting room. Um, yeah. I have a favourite. And I wonder if you do. Who's my favorite? You've got dead the, weirdo. the shrunken head guy. You've mm-hmm. got the um, magician's assistant who's been cut in half.
1: My favorite dead weirdo is is the burnt guy who's still there smoking away.
0: That's my favorite too.
1: Yay. <laughs> yeah, clear, <laughs> clearly he'd been smoking in bed or something. And, yeah, and he's asleep. all <laughs> crispy.
0: And he's like, I'm thinking of giving up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, he's my favorite dead weirdo yeah he's lovely he's yeah. lovely yeah but the second would be roadkill guy I think who's just a fabulous bit of design
0: I mean I just think what beautiful kind of production design and it's the same with so many of Tim Burton's films is like the care and attention and detail that is put into all the little like background freaks who I yeah. just love Yeah,
1: well that I think he's just this is this is where I go ah this is where Tim Burton's having the most fun he can possibly have mm. he's just going wild with imagination, all that stuff in the afterlife. He's just yeah playing and having a great time. What else have we to discuss?
0: Well, I mean, any anything else that I might want to say about this film is basically just going to be enthusing because it's. Um, I just think it was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. It was like to me, it's like peak Burton. Yes, and which, which uh, considering it's his second film. Yeah, he, he, he <laughs> might not take that so kindly. <laughs> no, well, no. I mean, like I said to you before, I gave up on Tim Burton after Dark Shadows.
1: Yeah, I think I think he's sort of just grown into sort of perfectly fine filmmaker you know what I mean somebody who can make a film and knows how to do that perfectly well from all the technical aspects I don't yeah. know that he's having much fun anymore mm. doing it which to be fair he has been doing for some, something for you know 40 years or whatever it's not necessarily mm. going to have the same you're not going to get the same joy out of it that he once did Stephen King talks about how galling it is to be told all the time that his best work was 40 years ago um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah <laughs> And I can absolutely uh, I can absolutely sympathize God, um, yeah.
0: I started listening to the audiobook of Pet Cemetery, by the way. Um, oh, since our conversation last. Week. yeah, it's great. I'm really enjoying it. Um, yeah. It's Michael C. Hall uh, narrating right. it. Um, Dexter Dexter himself. yeah, yeah, fab, yeah that's um, great. So um, yeah, it's it's really good. I'm enjoying it a lot.
1: Excellent. I'm so glad, so glad you're enjoying it. So I think I described it last week as a, an exercise in sustained dread. And yeah. that, I think, comes from the fact that from the very beginning, from almost the opening paragraph, you can see where things are going. And it's just unstoppable. Like those trucks <laughs> <laughs> going down that road.
0: But no, I think um, Tim Burton is probably... And I feel a little bit like this with Peter Jackson now. I feel <laughs> like they are... But, and actually, there's probably a load of directors like this. But I feel like they'd probably benefit from having... The their budget slashed, um, kind of forcing them to think creatively. Uh, they, I think they, they could do with giving themselves a pot of 15 million, say, to go yeah. away and make something. Yeah, do something um, on,
1: a, on a tight budget. Yeah, just um, just so that they know they still can, apart from anything else.
0: Well, and, and you know, so you can make literally anything you want, mm-hmm. but you've only got 15 million to do it. You can work with whoever you want, you can do, like, you've got the freedoms that being a director of your status has afforded you, but you've just not got as much money.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's. It's um, yeah, a, a really important thing I think for all artists, whatever your medium, actually mm. is restrictions. I told you about the uh, old. YouTube channel Every Frame of Painting. One of uh, one of his videos is about the guy behind so many of the Looney Tunes characters and stories, Chuck Chuck Jones, oh. and that talks a lot about what Chuck Jones called disciplines, and they were they were the rules that he would impose on the characters that he'd created to make them work. I think that discipline is really important
0: when you're telling any story, but particularly a story that has any element of the fantastical or supernatural you have to be really clear with the audience about what the rules of that world are um, and stick to them or if you're going to break them you need to be really sure that you've established what they are because an audience cannot go with you unless they know what the rules of the world are which is Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I think why I find it difficult to get into reading like high fantasy and for a lot of it for me like high fantasy writing ends up just being people explaining lore. And that isn't very interesting. <laughs> sure. Yes, <For> <laughs> I
1: absolutely sympathise with that. Yeah, my preferred method is for the story and characters to take me through and the world mm. to be built around that rather than yes. either the world be built and then the characters um, sort of exist once that world has been built, almost, um, and the, st- the story sort of comes in after the world's been built. Or the, the actually, the, the worst way of working is when the characters just sort of exist to serve the world that's been built mm. the characters in the story just exist to serve the, the world and whatever magic has been
0: well it ends up coming across like somebody just saying look how clever I am I've drawn this map of this fantasy yeah. world um, and it's actually and like Beetlejuice all of the stuff around it none of it really matters as much as any of the characters and like it's so important that we fall in love with the characters as we meet them and I think we do like I love the Dietzes yeah. even though they are antagonistic yeah they're um, monstrous
1: in a lot of ways particularly yeah. Delia but I love her
0: <laughs> yeah she's great and I think but like you know though when you meet Adam and Barbara right at the start I'm just like yeah you're gorgeous people Mm -hmm. um i love how in love you are with each other i love the energy you've got i love that you are happy in the circumstances you're in and therefore the stakes are so high for you to want to try and get back there all of the extra stuff all of the the kind of design and all of that stuff is beautiful and complements it but the characters are the most important thing um as with any good piece of storytelling, the characters are the main reason. Yes,
1: the characters are yeah are, are how and why you get invested in a story. Without attention to character, there's just nothing to nothing to watch really. Yeah, what do you, what do you think is sort of is the the question at the heart of the story?
0: Well, I guess like you, like you were saying before, there is a kind of coming to terms with your circumstances thing. Like the Maitlands need to come to terms with death. And Lydia needs to come to terms with life. So I suppose on like a grand scale, the question at the heart of it is about life and death and finding harmony and finding peace, finding belonging in a place that you've been taken to against your will or not of your choosing like Lydia has been moved into this house in the country not of her choosing she's been brought into the world (laughs) not of her choosing you know that teenage thing I didn't ask to be born Um, (laughs) and you know the Maitlands are dead and they didn't want to be they had stuff to do but it's how do you make the best of it so I guess I mean in a very sort of wishy-washy way, I guess it's about finding belonging and, and also finding your tribe, Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. I don't know, what do you think? For me, there's something
1: about sort of coexisting. Like, yeah, is it possible for the living and the dead to coexist in one space? And that's yeah. sort of the, the, the conflict that drives a lot of it, I think. And um, when you get to the end, yes, suddenly it is. They sort of come to an understanding in that final That final bit after everything they go through. First of all, the ghosts trying to exercise the humans and then the humans trying to exercise the ghosts and then they they finally come to an understanding having almost destroyed each other. And they do mm. live side by side relatively. And home. their
0: lives, their lives are better for it. Like yeah, the, that, that, that kind of final portrait that is painted of their lives now after the events is that everyone is happier.
1: Yeah, Lydia has found somewhere that she belongs and has realised that she does want to be alive. Because it's interesting. Because so for the for the whole time she does, I think, feel trapped by life and she doesn't want mm. to be alive. But when she comes face to face with Beetlejuice as Snake, that sudden danger is scary to her and I think she registers for a moment oh no 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 I don't want to die but then she sort of goes full tilt into I want to die and actually writes writes that she writes that letter yeah. Um, that's just a, a sort of, I, I don't think it's quite a suicide note, but it's a step along the way towards that, um, where she talks about how alone she is and she doesn't want to be alive. And then she actually, she says that to uh, to Adam and Barbara, to which Barbara's response is, no, no, you don't.
0: I guess there's a, a point in there about longing for death is longing for something you don't understand. Yeah, and, and actually, they're like, no, you don't want to die because if you take your own life, you're going to end up being like like the post girl or something in this in this system it feels bad now but don't wish it away try and make the best of what you've got i'm not sure whether i like that as an as an ethos <laughs> but i i guess uh, if
1: i think if the movie has a message that it's trying to impart and it it may be sort of counterintuitive to what people imagine is the sort of tim burton off mm. attitude um actually i think if the film has a message it is be alive and embrace that and embrace your weirdness and embrace whatever weird family situation and setup you've got because actually being alive is a wonderful wonderful thing and being mm. dead is just
0: And uh, that final scene, it's just so joyful where Winona Ryder is raised up into the air and that wonderful Calypso music is playing. I've been singing that song in my head, dancing around my kitchen (laughs) ever since I saw Beetlejuice last week. (laughs) It
1: it gets into your blood, doesn't it? It gets into your body. It does. Love me some Harry Belafonte who, yeah, he, he died not that long ago.
0: Yeah, March this was year it March was it yeah I was trying desperately to to see if there was any kind of poignant connection between calypso music as a genre and the message of this film I don't know if there necessarily is but it mm. just is beautiful joyful music. You can't yeah. not dance. So I, I, I talked before about
1: how the film is always working really hard to subvert your expectations. And here you've got a haunted house movie in this gothic house, and you generally expect sort of eerie music. Mm. What you have all the way through is joy. Just joyful music, mm. and it just completely subverts, pull, pulls the rug out from under you. This music is the most joyful music mm. you can imagine, and it's yeah. a film actually about finding the joy in life. Um,
0: um, yes. When Glen Shaddock's passed away. He had the Banana Boat song "Deo" played at his funeral. Did he? Yeah, that makes me feel yeah. quite emotional, actually. I love that. But yeah, it's it's yeah. it's gorgeous. It's the perfect way to end the film. You, yeah. I, you know, I started watching the film bopping away, and I. <laughs> danced away from watching it and just was like, there's a little extra nugget of joy that's been added to my life now that I've seen this film.
1: Yeah, and that, I think, is the main intention of the film, is to give you joy, and I love it for that. Love it for <laughs> it. I really do. And yeah, like, Otho's such a wonderful character.
0: He's so brilliant. He's Why so does he enter through the window? Oh, God only knows. God it, only it's knows. never explained, never referred to, Never. Yeah. no one ever says anything about it. It's just, And I, it's I, I love <laughs>
1: I like, he's he's so full of shit that character. I absolutely love him. It's when he he's taking Delia around the house, and I can't remember what colour she mentions, but she sort of spray. She doesn't she say she sprays uh, mauve Mouth. on the wall, and he just Mouth. goes, "You read my mind." <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely, not very Charlotte. many people can and he said he says something else he's like because you're gonna need a lot of money for what i need to do to this place <laughs> like, i can't remember but he's, he's wonderful he's got a black suit and red shoes and i yeah. love that the the worst thing that beetlejuice can do to him at the end as comeuppance is put him in this like pale blue kind of doo-wop suit it's amazing <laughs>
1: it's, it's just beautiful i love it um <laughs> yeah he also says uh, at one point he says i I know as much about the supernatural as I do about interior design, <laughs> which which landed for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a great script.
1: Yeah, oh, There are so many great lines in it. It's I so know, funny. Yeah.
0: And to me, this film has a quality of that kind of old Hollywood, like economy, slick, sharp, funny. It lays itself out for the audience and you can pick at it like a lovely buffet of all the yeah. stuff that you enjoy. Um, without it needing to labour anything. I just love it.
1: I don't go to watch comedies at the cinema. I don't ever put them on. Um, modern comedies, this is. Because with a few notable exceptions, there's no discipline. Hollywood forgot how to make comedy. They forgot, actually, comedy is harder than drama. You you can't just show up fucking ad-lib some nonsense and edit it a bit and that's good. That's not how it works. When you look at the golden age of Hollywood, you look at classic comedies, the classic screwball comedies, like Bringing Up Baby, um, uh, Arsenic and Old Lace. You look at all of this stuff and they're so, so tightly, meticulously crafted and they are funny. You even look at uh, dramas from, from that era with like the really quotable funny lines like Casablanca is really funny. It's got so many quotable lines. Every line counts. It's not an actor going, and it'll be funny if I say this. You know, it drives me up the wall. Uh, So yeah, I don't don't go and watch comedies very often.
0: Like even comedies that people have banged onto me about, people went on and on and on about Anchorman. (laughs) Yeah. To the point where I was like, fine, I'll put it on. And I started watching it and I was like, I cannot bear this. Modern comedies, I feel now are so much more kind of vehicles for comedians. Yeah, there's no discipline. There's no character. The whole the experience for me as a viewer of watching them is that I'm I'm sitting on the outside of a friendship group who've all got an amazing in-joke that I don't get. No, it's also yeah. smug. So it's smug. really smug.
1: Like it and it, it it comes from the American improv scene. Really smug improv. It's you know, it's all whose line is it anyway? We're Which I find really, really dreary.
0: It's that kind of frat pack comedy that I really don't like. You know the like Anchorman and um, Adam Sandler stuff and um, Jack Black and
1: yeah. That's not to say that these people haven't made good movies.
0: Oh no, absolutely not.
1: I'm partial to an occasional Adam Sandler movie. I mean, I'm not talking about like the good drama Adam Sandler, um, (laughs) which like when you put Adam Sandler in like dramatic roles, he's fucking great. Yeah. Yeah, like Uncut Gems, brilliant. Uh, I still haven't above. seen that. Really great. Um, oh, there's another one as well that I can't remember what it's called. It'll come back to me. No, Adam Sandler I really rate as an actor. I do find a lot of his comedy output obnoxious. Yeah. What's
0: that one where he plays brother and sister? Oh, Jack God. and Jill.
1: Jack and Jill. That's the one. <laughs> Al-, Al Pacino is in that, isn't he? Is he? Yeah, I think so. As himself. I'm sure what? I'm sure that's the one that Al-, Al Pacino shows up as himself in Jack and Jill. Oh, dear cuz he's got he's got a line at one point apparently and this this is this is the good line in the movie his oscar gets broken and uh, adam sandler as jack goes oh well, you've got another one right to which Pacino's response is hey i think <laughs> that's quite good <laughs> which, which is quite funny <laughs> <laughs> that that made me laugh i like it was a genuine laugh. <laughs> it's a good joke it should be said at this point also though from everything i hear from anybody who's ever sort of met him or worked with him adam sandler nicest guy in hollywood
0: really? Really? That makes me really happy, actually, because my money would have been on him being an intolerable arsehole. I'm delighted to be proved wrong.
1: Right. Beetlejuice. If I was an expert in effects, we could sit here and talk about the effects for hours. I love like I grew up on Ray Harryhausen movies and I like when I when I watch the the Beetlejuice snake. Attacking. Mm. All I'm seeing is is Ray Harryhausen stuff, and it just it put a smile on my face. Isn't there something about he wanted the effects to be a little bit, a little bit sort of shonky from what was technically possible at the time? I think to sort of give you that bit of uh, bit of distance. It's like um, Team America. They got this incredible team of puppeteers to to do it, and they were like, yeah, we can make it look like there's no strings and all this fantastic stuff. And Trey Parker, and Matt Stone just went, well, wait, hang on. We're making a movie with puppets. Why would we want to hide? that? That.
0: But I think that that does a really good job of distancing, like in mm. terms of making it kind of child friendly, it yeah. makes the horror less horrific. Any any moment of horror, particularly where the special effects are concerned, is always undercut with something like and like um, at the beginning when they're trying to scare the Dietzers away and they um Gina Davis is standing there with Alec Baldwin's severed head. But mm. then immediately Alec Baldwin's body gets up to run upstairs to lock the bedroom, lock the door. And it's yeah. and it's like and it's bashing so around funny. and trying to. Yeah. Like, it's so funny. Like there's never any danger that something. An image is going to linger with you in a horrible way because yeah. it's there's always this little kind of punchline afterwards that makes yeah. it silly. Yeah,
1: I think I think we've spoken sort of briefly in the last couple of weeks about comedy horror um, and mm. the kind of person that it takes to do that. It takes, I and mean, I can't believe actually we overlooked Tim Burton um, because yeah, it takes somebody with a particular flair to nail comedy horror. It takes a Tim Burton, a uh, Peter Jackson, a mm. uh, Sam Raimi, um, Edgar Wright these days, um, sort of flying that flag.
0: Has your opinion of the film changed in any way having had a chat about it?
1: No, if anything, I like it even more. Um, mm. I, I, I sort of I knew the film already going in. I've uh, liked it for a long time. Having watched it in a little more depth, I like mm. it more than I did. Yeah, a big big thumbs up from me.
0: Yeah, me too. Really big thumbs up. Are you ready to play? What's the film gonna be next week?
1: Are you ready to play? <laughs> 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 okay, so as I remember, this is a. Three round game. So first of all, what you would have picked. Then we have what you think I would have picked. And then for part three, I'll reveal what I have
0: picked. So in terms of what I would have chosen, there's obviously a lot of different ways that you can go. I wouldn't have gone Tim Burton because Mm -hmm. I think that there's plenty of time for us to come back to the films of Tim Burton. And also I think that talking about Tim Burton films, particularly Tim Burton films that either of us would choose, we're going to be covering a lot of the same sort of topics because in terms of his directorial style so i think that going tim burton wouldn't make for a particularly interesting discussion next week so currently i am in um a bit of a golden age of hollywood zone uh-huh. uh, i would follow sylvia sydney interesting and i would be going back to i mean so sylvia Sidney was um a, quite a big movie star uh, back in the kind of golden age of hollywood so 30s 40s 50s and she did a lot of noir and a lot of like Gang- she played a lot of like gangsters, moles, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would be going, and I think this is probably quite appropriate as well, considering talking about Tim Burton's visual style, um, and I mm. think being very much inspired by like German expressionist cinema. I'd be going to Fritz Lang's Fury from 1936, which I think wow. you can probably watch on YouTube. I don't. I think it would be. um, um yeah. It's a kind of black and white cracking noir. Or I'd go for. Um, something like city streets um which again is just a cracking noir just to see sydney sweeney kind of in her youth doing some gorgeous acting and so that we can get to talk about a film from a different time period that's That's what i would do (laughs) Mm -hmm. um now a couple of things that I wonder if you might have done. The first thing I did wonder is, yeah, you might have gone for another ghost movie like the others, or I mean, any any good ghost movie, you can take your pick. What I wondered if you might have done is gone through the costume designer. Interesting. And as we were discussing last week, I, f- I think a bit of a favorite of both of ours. I wondered if you might have gone through the costume designer to *The Fugitive*. <laughs> <laughs> which would have been fine by me. Okay. I'm going to say that you've gone thematic and we're doing another kind of haunted house movie.
1: Any particular one? Um, <laughs>
0: there are so many. <laughs> no, I don't know. Okay, that's put fine. Put me out of my misery, Ed.
1: I'm going to put you out of your misery. Um, I've not done that. I've not picked no. another haunted house movie. Um, I've not gone thematic at all, actually. You were, you were closer uh, when you were talking about the costume designer. Now, I haven't gone through the costume designer. So, Beetlejuice, as we mentioned, won one Oscar mm-hmm. for its makeup. The makeup department was headed by Robert Short, Steve Laporte, and the brilliant V. Neal. So, we're going to go through V. Neal, who has won three Oscars uh, and been nominated for a host more Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, uh, mm-hmm. Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. She won. An Oscar for Ed Wood, mm. which could have been a choice, but wasn't because I didn't want to go the Tim Burton route. She also won for her makeup on Mrs. Doubtfire. She was Are we nominated. we watching for...
0: Mrs. Doubtfire?
1: We're not watching Mrs. Doubtfire okay. either. No. <laughs> um, she also did the. Uh, was nominated for the makeup for uh, Batman Returns. Uh, Hoffer and Edward Scissorhands. I've not chosen any of those. She was on the team that won Best Makeup on a different movie. So, this is a movie that has a lot of prosthetic makeup work. It won Best Makeup Oscar. It was nominated for several other Oscars. Uh, it's a much overlooked movie. Um, and V Neil specifically was responsible for the makeup on Al Pacino, who played Big Boy Caprice in 1990s. Dick Tracy. <laughs>
0: and that is what
1: we're going to watch.
0: Amazing. I, 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 up until you said the words Dick Tracy, I had no idea where that was going. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a movie. Okay, amazing. I've never seen it before. You've never Have seen you? It. I, I think
1: I saw it when I was very, very, very little. Right, okay. Um, I, Don't remember anything about it. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I think it's going to be bonkers. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's going to be properly, properly batshit mad.
0: Who directed this film?
1: So, uh, directed and starring Warren Beatty. Right, okay. Um, uh, other folks in the cast, uh, you've got Madonna um, as Breathless Mahoney. Uh, you've got uh, <laughs> Charlie Cosmo, who was the boy in Hook, um, is in a central role in Dick Tracy. Uh, you've got all sorts of people show up. You've got uh, Dustin Hoffman shows up. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. To, uh, to watch and have a chat about.
0: This is wonderful, Ed. What a fantastic choice. Um, where can we watch it?
1: It's available to rent at all of the usual places, so Prime, Apple mm. Movies, um, the Sky Store, YouTube, wherever you choose to, to rent movies. Uh, in HD for £3.49. Uh, or, you know, maybe there might be a second-hand copy in cex it's <laughs> yeah. always worth a look i did have a always. look for a second-hand copy of beetlejuice in cex but it was four quid and i was like well it's cheaper to rent." Mm,
0: yeah 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 <laughs> and actually um, i was wrong last week and it was available just on prime it was yes i got muddled i think there's two different versions and yeah. i'm not sure what's different about them but one of them you have to rent and the other one is is just on prime so yeah
1: the uh, the one that's streaming um I don't know if you picked up on this, is in the sci-fi category.
0: Oh. Beetlejuice oh. as
1: sci-fi movie. Not sure I see it myself.
0: No, um, <laughs> no, <laughs>
1: no, just no. Any final words? What, uh, are you excited to see anything this week? Or
0: I'm going to try and squeeze in another Gene Tierney film, I think, at some point. I'm not sure what. Largely depends what's available for free um, on YouTube. And um, I'm just trying to think. I was having a look, and there's not a right lot that I want to see at the cinema. I do fancy mm-hmm. Bo is Afraid, the new yeah. Ari Aster film. More because of Ari Aster than because of actually anything that I've seen about the film itself. Um, yeah,
1: I suspect it's going to be a bit like we were talking earlier with David Lynch. And um, mm. yeah, I think it might be hard work.
0: But, you know, I'm up for it. Um, I might go at some point. Uh, my husband is going away for work, uh, which ah. is when I usually stuff my face with horror movies at home. <laughs> so, <laughs> But maybe I'll go and check out those. What about you? Yeah. Uh,
1: Well I'm off to the theatre tonight I'm going to go see The Ocean at the End of the Lane uh, which is touring at the moment and they're playing The Alex in Birmingham at the moment I saw it a couple Um, of weeks
0: ago in Sheffield you did, yeah. Think, I'd love to know what you did. think. Yeah,
1: we'll have that chat next week. Yeah, and I'm going to try and squeeze in Bo is Afraid tomorrow uh, before I head back down to London on Thursday for mm-hmm. uh, more of the Faulty Towers. Oh,
0: yeah. um, I'll tell you what I <laughs> did see last week that I completely forgot to mention when we did our chat. Um, me and Richard went to see the Tiger Lilies, which was wonderful highly recommend for anyone who hasn't heard of the tiger lilies look them up i want um they've got a song called crack of doom and i want that played at my funeral
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure i know that one i'll have to have a listen there
0: oh it's so good yeah, yeah, check it out. I don't
1: I don't really know The Tiger Lilies that well. Ah. I've heard I've heard a couple of other things but not much.
0: Before we went to see them Richard was really like, "Oh, I, I don't really know them very well and I should really have listened." And actually they're a band you don't need to have heard any of their songs before to go and enjoy them live. The music is great, but they are more pitch black cabaret clown. Mm protest they are they're they're amazing and i they're they're a trio there's only three of them and they're all kind of multi-talented play everything sing everything do everything because they have this kind of clown element it means that they can say things in their songs that you wouldn't be able to get away with as a normal band it is cabaret there's a kind of gypsy punk vibe Mm. to it as well it's very funny the main guy sings in falsetto so it's got a really distinctive sound Uh, The lyrics are really funny. Like, I really, really recommend. They are incredible live. Go and see them. I think I shall. I'll stop banging on about that now.
1: (laughs) So, I think uh, all that remains to be said is to say thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. And if you like what you hear, please do subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact us at, moviechain at outlook.com and we're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. See you next week.
0: Bye. 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 <laughs>